Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hi, this is economist Art Carden from Samford University's Brock School of Business and Forbes.com. A lot of people are talking about socialism as if it is some new thing. But what is it? Why should Christians care? And what if I told you that about two decades before the Russian Revolution, there was a novel written that predicted most of what was going to happen? Stay tuned to find out more. Our guest today is Michael Tanner. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he heads research on a variety of domestic policy issues with an emphasis on social welfare, health care, and retirement. Tanner is a frequent commentator on cable and network television, and his writing has appeared in nearly every major American newspaper. Mike, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, you know, at the Libertarian Christian Institute, we talk a lot about liberty and we talk a lot about how liberty affects uh, everybody in our country. And one of the things that attracted me to the message of liberty uh, about a decade ago when I became a libertarian was how I started realizing that more liberty meant better human flourishing for everyone, including the poor, or I should say, especially the poor. So it's no wonder that your book, uh, The Inclusive Economy, which is what we're going to talk about right now, kind of piqued my interest. And I'm really, really glad that I was able to, to read it. You know, for Christians, it's a it's a very important thing to follow Jesus in the way that he advocated, and that is to take care of those on the margins and to consider that they they are the ones who need our attention. Uh, and so your book actually does that. I don't think that was your goal in setting out to help Christians uh, follow Jesus better, but uh, I think it's kind of doing that. Um, but I, I guess I just want to start with kind of mentioning, like, you take a different approach to the average angle on poverty. And uh, what... What kind of approach did you decide to take because, you know, what we're doing now in America isn't really working? Well, I think what we do now is primarily throw money at the problem. If you look at the more than 100 federal programs uh, and spending at the federal, state, local levels, we spend nearly a trillion dollars every year fighting poverty. Spent some $26 trillion since uh, Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty. Uh, the question we should ask is, what are we actually getting for that money? Uh, now, in fairness, we can say that we have reduced the poverty rate. Uh, we've made poverty less miserable, if you will, uh, dealing with a lot of the material deprivations that come with poverty uh, over time. I mean, you can go back to the mid-1960s when the majority of poor didn't have running water or electricity. Uh, that when uh, malnutrition was widespread uh, among low-income people, those sorts of things uh, don't exist anymore. Uh, you know, it'd be hard for even the federal government to spend uh, $26 trillion without having some impact on the poor. But if we were to measure success in terms of allowing people to become fully actualized human beings and rise as far as their talents will take them, in terms of allowing them to become self-supporting and to being able to take care of their own families, in terms of allowing them to become full participants of the economy, 
Well, we haven't been nearly so successful. Uh, we've created kind of a custodial welfare state in which we will ensure that nobody starves, but people will sort of answer to the state uh, instead of to themselves or to God or to, or to their families. And I think that that's not the direction we want to go in. You know, you start the book with uh, with a history of how poverty was was addressed, and they're kind of two. You know, people look back on the you know war against poverty, or just like the approaches that people have taken to poverty, and I think what has emerged you describe is that there's this like this structural theory where you know most mostly people like progressives are going to say, well, you know, people are poor because you know the government isn't doing enough, or the the institutions that we have around them, or they have you know uh, structural problems, basically societal societal structural problems. And then you have, you know, conservatives on the right often kind of making it more about a person's moral failure or simple, you know, lack of lack of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, uh, things like that. Uh, do those do those theories have any value in under? I mean, are they both right? Or are they both wrong? How, how do you assess that? Well, there's some truth to both the conservative and the liberal critiques. Uh, when it comes down to why are people poor. Conservatives for a long time have suggested that there's a culture of poverty, if you will, or that individual behavior, the choices that uh, the poor make uh, lead them, them into poverty. And there's certainly something to that. They point to what's called the success sequence. Uh, the success sequence says that if you finish school and then you get a job and then you get married before you have children, you're not likely to be poor. And that's absolutely correct. There's a strong correlation for each of those items individually and certainly one for them as a whole. Uh, people who follow that success sequence are very much unlikely to be poor. You are, uh, if you work, for example, only about 3% of working people uh, live in poverty. If you have children outside of marriage, you're five times more likely to be poor than if you wait until you, uh, you're married before you have children. Uh, if you drop out of high school, you're very likely to be poor. About half of high school dropouts are poor uh, compared to very few uh, uh, college graduates. So there's, we certainly can suggest that behavior and culture have something to do with this. On the other hand, people, uh, you know, people make, don't make choices in a vacuum. They don't make the decisions uh, sort of free form. They do respond to the environment and the situations in which they're in. And in a society that still uh, has a great deal of racism and gender-based discrimination in which there is economic disruption, people are going to make different choices. And a, a poor black child in the inner city is going to face an entirely different set of influences and circumstances than, say, a wealthy white child in the suburbs. And that's going to result in a different set of choices. So, yeah, and, you know, the the race and gender thing – tends to be ignored I think in a lot of in a lot of discussions on this because I think to some extent some pe people don't want to talk about it they don't want to attribute things to things like race like conservatives don't want to admit that there's still racism or race-based uh, discrimination going on uh, and progressives I think probably overemphasize that aspect of it but uh, you, you talk a little bit maybe sort of share some statistics with our listeners that you can that you can provide like what is the effect of poverty? on the mother, the single mother who is poor? I mean, what, where, where does that, uh, how does that affect sure, well, poverty? I mean, you're five, about five times more likely to be poor if you're a single mother than if you uh, are married intact, part of a married intact family. But the problem we end up with there is a question of, of causation. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a chicken and egg problem, and scholars debate this a great deal. 
uh, you know, are women poor because they give birth outside of marriage or are there characteristics of poverty that cause poor women to give birth outside of marriage? And I think you can look at both. People are not uh, chaffed by the, you know, blown by the wind. You can't deprive poor people of agency and say that they have no choices, that their decisions don't matter. On the other hand, economists will all say all our choices are constrained by circumstance, mm-hmm. and we have to look at uh, that poor mother and where she lives and the circumstances around her, and uh, and suggest that you know her what influences her to have children outside of marriage may not be entirely something that lies with her. One of the questions I always ask is: We say that poor women should get married before they have children, but who are they supposed to marry? particularly if we look at inner city areas where the war on drugs and uh, the discrimination that goes on in our criminal justice system has taken a million and a half young black men out of the marriage pool uh, because they're either tied up in the criminal justice system or they have a criminal record that prevents them from getting a job. Uh, As William Julius Wilson of Harvard notes, there's not a whole lot of opportunity for these poor women to get married. Well, I think that's one of the great things about your book that I really loved was that you integrated the approach to all these different things, which we'll get to we'll get to some of them here in a few minutes that, you know, we could say, oh, well, they just need to get married or be you know more open to it. And then your, your comeback is, well, yeah, but now we, we have this criminal justice problem and the government is in some ways taking away their opportunities for marriage. And so you don't dismiss the structural concerns. You don't dismiss the cultural individual behavior theory concerns. So I think people on both sides can read what you have to say and, and walk away. I hope realizing that they haven't thought through every, you know, every detail. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that was part of your aim, right? To, to attract people that weren't simply libertarians. Well, absolutely. I mean, I definitely wanted people who were either conservatives or liberals to read this book and understand that uh, as a libertarian, we have something to offer in terms of policy. I also wanted to try to convince both sides to stop the blame game. I, I think too much uh, time, too many times on the right, conservatives indulge in sort of victim blaming or victim shaming and say, oh, the poor are bad people, they're promiscuous, they're lazy, whatever it might be. And then people on the left want to, want to blame society and say, oh, well, it's because society is racist or sexist or, or whatever. Uh, I think we need to stop trying to find out who's to blame and start trying to say, how can we solve the problem? Well, and you also don't eliminate, I mean, you obviously take into account through the idea of reform that the government isn't going to not be involved. I mean, most lib- a lot of hardcore libertarians are like, well, you know, we should just let the free market take care of this and, and everything will be hunky-dory, except the government's already involved. It's making a mess of a lot of things, even if it has some you know, residual good side effects. Uh, so your, your answer isn't just to blame the government. Well, I I think that that's a debate for another day. I I think, uh, and I do talk in the book about how these government programs have largely failed in order to give people control over their own lives, uh, which is truly important. But I don't think another sort of sterile debate about whether or not food stamps that we spend about $88 billion on food stamps, should we make that 89 or should we cut it to 87 is really a productive debate. What I want to do is reduce, is change the environment so there are fewer people that need help in the first place. If we can create a situation in which the poor can become full participants in the economy, take charge of their lives, can, can become self-supporting and self-sufficient, 
Well, then we can have a debate about what to do with the remnant, the few people in our society who can't do that, who are left behind. Uh, and that's an entirely different debate to have. But Mike, you're going to take away all the leverage politicians use every single election. If you if, you, if they're incorporated into society, and what are they going to what are they going to complain about? Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But part of the problem is that we don't talk enough about poverty in this country. We're very few programs uh, are really designed to help the poor. They're either designed to take the burden of guilt or responsibility off of the rest of us, or they're really designed for the working class and we sort of portray it as being something to do with poverty. But we actually don't care a great deal about the poor in this country, largely because the poor don't vote. A lot of people have this impression that, you know, a poor person is on, say, welfare and is a recipient of some sort of welfare benefits. And, you know, the next best thing for them, we hope, is that they get a job, except that there's this tax. What is the tax on just simply getting a job if you're already poor and jobless? One of the perverse incentives of the current welfare system is that we actually punish somebody who leaves welfare and gets a job. You know, there's all this debate in Washington all the time about marginal tax rates, and uh, and certainly they matter. And if we tax the wealthy too much, they won't produce, they won't invest, and that hurts the economy at large. But the highest marginal tax rate that anyone faces in this country is actually somebody who leaves welfare and takes that first job. Uh, First of all, they start paying taxes on the first dollar they earn. The payroll tax is paid right away, so they're starting to pay taxes right away, which reduces their income. Second, they begin to lose their welfare benefits. As soon as they begin to earn outside income, we take away some of the benefits they have. And you can earn a dollar and lose 50 cents of benefits, you're worse off. And then third, you begin to incur expenses when you go to work, transportation, child care, uh, clothing, all of the, these additional expenses, it's actually possible for somebody who takes that first entry-level job to end up worse off economically than when they were on welfare. You know, as far as I've seen, you know, and the poor people that I've talked to, I, I can say that poor people are not lazy, but they're also not stupid. If you're going to pay them less to work than they can make on welfare, many of them are going to remain on welfare. So that fact actually was brand new to me, and I'm not sure why I hadn't seen it or or heard about it before, but that just is baffling to me that, I mean, I can't imagine some left-leaning politician not trying to write some legislation to resolve that. I mean, how did that even, how did that even happen? Like, that just seems too bad to be true. Well, it's a combination of two things. Number one, in any program that's not universal, that is any program that you phase out, you're going to run into this problem in the phase-out range, and that is that... As you were, as more outside income comes in, you're going to begin to lose a certain level of benefits. Uh, and second, uh, I mean, essentially, we tried to cap the expenses of these programs by trying to hold them down to simply people at the lowest end of the income scale, which means that people who earn income in addition to their welfare benefits are going to be worse off. Now, there have been some efforts, the earned income tax credit, for example, to try to offset this, uh, and it does a partially good job. But you always run into this sort of uh, slope problem where the further up the income stream you take benefits, the more those benefits cost. And if you push it down the income stream, you end up with this big cliff in which you, uh, this sort of what people talk of as a welfare cliff, in which you uh, end up worse off by earning outside income. Yeah, well, I mean, man, that's just, it's a really bad problem to have. I mean, you got to have a cutoff somewhere if you're going to have it, you know, to be, you know, means tested. But like, I don't know, in my head, I'm thinking, shouldn't there be some sort of like time frame? Like, you know, your your benefits don't cut off right away, but they like, they like gradually fizzle over the course of your employment, you know, like a year or two of employment. 
One of the problems is that there is no rational system. And, and you're sort of assuming <laughs> that the welfare system actually is a system and that there's some sort of thought behind how it works. The reality is that it's a conglomeration of programs that have sprung up sort of willy-nilly. I'd say there's over 100 federal uh, anti-poverty programs. About 72 of those provide benefits either to individuals, either the cash or what's called in-kind benefits. Uh, the others provide benefits to low-income neighborhoods and communities. Uh, these programs all have individual constituencies. They all have different eligibility rules. They all cut out at different levels. They, some have work requirements, some don't have work requirements. Some have education requirements, some don't have education requirements. Uh, if you're eligible for program A, you may not be able to be part of program C. On the other hand, if you're in program B, you may automatically qualify for program E and F. Uh, there's really no uh, design to these programs. They just all have sprung up along the way. And that is, that's one of the problems with the existing welfare system. It's me again, Art Cardin from Sanford University's Brock School of Business and Forbes.com. In 2010, a couple of weeks after my daughter was born, I wrote a short essay for Forbes.com's book blog about a novel by a German libertarian named Eugen von Richter. Richter wrote a book called Pictures of the Socialistic Future, and in it he predicted with uncanny accuracy what was going to happen, or what ultimately happened in the 20th century, as a result of the socialist revolution, as a result of the development and spread of communism across Asia and Eastern Europe. Socialism is an ideology that left a pile of corpses tens of millions of bodies deep, and Richter saw a lot of the things that ultimately were going to happen. It's something that could have been avoided, something that could have been avoided had we thought harder about it, something that could have been avoided had we heeded the warnings of Richter, Ludwig von Mises, and many other scholars who had a pretty good idea that socialism was not, in fact, conducive to human flourishing. I tell students sometimes that they should read Friedrich Hayek's work, not only as if their lives depend on it, but as if their children's lives depend on it. And in light of the horror story that was the 20th century under socialism, in which the government owns and controls the means of production, I would encourage you to do the same as well. To learn more about how to use the economic way of thinking, visit libertarianchristians.com slash artcardin. And now, back to the episode. Well, I mean, and then this conversation, of course, is still talking about distribu distribution of money and throwing money at a problem. And your book is really largely about a proposal or a set of proposals that would, like you said earlier, create human flourishing for 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 everyone, but for poor people. You know, what's what's interesting to me as I kind of look at that list of five major items is that you're basically proposing that capitalism should start working for the poor better than it currently does. Well, we know that economic growth does more than any government program in terms of reducing poverty. That's throughout history. I mean, through, oh, yeah. for most of man's history, mankind was desperately poor. Uh, had a little bit of an elite at the top who lived uh, lives of slightly less abject misery. But uh, but for the most part, we, we were struggling and starving in, uh, throughout history. And then about 300 years ago, something happened that changed that. And there was dramatic upshoot in human prosperity and in the wealth uh, of mankind. And that was the advent of modern free market capitalism. Uh, and that still works today in terms of lifting people out of poverty. If, uh, you know, if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, about 70 to 80 percent of uh, Americans lived in, the, in poverty. And of course, that's a, a very small percentage today. 
Uh, and that's largely the result, uh, again, of economic growth and capitalism. In fact, there's very few poor people today that would trade their lifestyle for the lifestyle of, say, the Carnegie's or the Vanderbilt's uh, 120 years ago. They'd have, you know, the, the Carnegie's had a much bigger house, but they didn't have any heat. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're, we live in a very different world today. That said, that the economic growth has got to be inclusive. We've got to find ways in which the poor can participate in it. If all the benefits of that economic growth are adhered to by a small group at the top and they block the poor, lock them out of participating in the economy, that's not going to do anything in terms of reducing poverty and making the plight of the poor better. Yeah. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Um, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to ask uh, to you is – why should we care about relative poverty? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, the poor people today are better than the Vanderbilts, you know, uh, in their day. And, you know, the Vanderbilts didn't have iPhones or smartphones or, you know, running water and all that. But they didn't need Internet back then. I mean, that wasn't part of their economy. And so today there's there's a lot of needs that people have that relative to what the rest of the economy has, they have a severe lack of. Uh, and so do, should we care about relative poverty? Because I think we all agree uh, abject poverty, at least in the U.S., is largely, largely behind us. Well, there's a big debate among scholars about how you should measure poverty. Should it be in absolute terms or relative terms? Uh, as you mentioned, in absolute terms, uh, you can certainly say that Americans aren't all that poor. In fact, the poorest Americans are probably in the middle class on a worldwide basis. Uh, so, you, you know, we certainly don't have the type of uh, poverty seen in the South Sudan widespread in the United States. And by those measures, we can say we've eliminated uh, poverty in this country. On the other hand, uh, you know, people who we consider poor in this country uh, can look around themselves and see the distance between themselves and others, and they're certainly going to feel poor. Uh, Adam Smith talked about this. He asked about the, the linen, a good linen shirt he talked about. He said, look, can a man uh, who doesn't have a good linen shirt be considered poor? Well, by many standards, no. If he's got enough to eat and he's got a roof over his head, uh, he's probably not poor. On the other hand, without that linen shirt, he can't participate in society. He can't go out to eat. He can't get a job interview. There's much that he's locked out of. So in another sense, he really is poor. Uh, and I, I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. On the other hand, uh, you can argue about relative poverty, and you can say, well, there'll always be inequality. And if we measure poor simply by how, you know, a percentage of the rich, we can never end poverty because if we made, if we doubled everybody's income, even though we'd make the poor much better off, we wouldn't change their relative status compared to the rich. So we could say we haven't accomplished anything. And I don't think that that's fair either. Yeah. I, I once read, uh, and Stephen Colbert, he has a, a introduction in his book. It says, you know, I will not stop until everybody's in the top 1%. <laughs> We can't do that, of course, and there's obviously the humor in it. Well, yeah, and you could be, you know, you could you could just simply look back to the Great Recession when we had the, the stock market crash. There, we wiped out about a third of American millionaires. If you look at that, say, yay! Isn't that wonderful? We're more equal as a society. We should have a bigger recession. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to do that. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so let's let's get to your actual proposals. I'll just list them off here for our for our listeners: uh, criminal justice reform, education reform. Bring down the cost of housing, make it easier for the poor to bank and invest and and to save and make economic growth more inclusive. Now, for our audience, I think criminal justice reform and education reform is kind of like those are, you know, 
that's something that we're like, we're all on board with. Uh, and we kind of have our, our minds around it. And I wanted to focus on the other three, which was bring down the cost of housing, banking, uh, make it easier for them to bank, and then making growth more inclusive. So th- the housing thing, I, I didn't quite realize the impact of housing, at least in terms of like the data uh, in your book. Could you give us an overview of, of what that is? Yeah, housing hurts the poor in a couple of different ways. And one is just simply a huge portion of their their income goes to housing. At the poor spend about 40% of their income uh, in terms of rent or other housing costs. Uh, it just eats up a lot of their money uh, that, that, that they spend. So if the cost of housing goes up, if it's very expensive for them to rent, that leaves a lot less money for other things. And second, it makes it hard for them to move to better locations. If you're trying to move to an area with more jobs or with better schools or less crime, it becomes very hard for you to do so if you can't afford the rent or the housing costs in those new locations. It sort of ghettoizes the poor, forces them into these areas that have a, a lot of dysfunction and a lot of problems. What are other ways that, that the housing uh, is affected? I mean, they can't, they, they, they have a lack of mobility. What about the, like, what causes this price to be so high? Uh, because, you know, for some people, housing isn't the, the biggest expense. Why is it that way for the poor? Well, in particular, uh, the, in terms of the book, I look at uh, government regulations that drive up the cost of housing, particularly land use and zoning laws. Uh, it, zoning laws in particular are interesting. They started off explicitly racist. Uh, in nature. Uh, the, the earliest zoning law, I believe, in the country was, I believe, in Los Angeles, but the second earliest was actually in Baltimore. And part of the zoning law prohibited uh, a renter or a houser, uh, someone owned housing, from selling or renting to person who was not the majority race on that block. So if you had 55% of your block was white, you could not rent an apartment to a black uh, family on that block. Uh, it still today has the same effect uh, in terms of segregation uh, in neighborhoods. The the cost of zoning laws can add about 10% to the cost of housing or rent in most communities. But in some places like San Francisco and Manhattan, it can add as much as 50% to the cost of an apartment or a cost of a house in those areas. Uh, that effectively blocks the poor out of living in those neighborhoods. So, you know, the next topic is about banking and what is it what is it about banking? I mean, why can't the poor just go open up a bank account? I mean, there's so many, you know, I see billboards about free checking accounts. Uh, can't they earn a little bit of savings? I mean, what's what's the problem there? Why can't they just go to the bank and invest now, even if it's small? Yeah, there's two issues in particular I address uh, in terms of savings uh, and, and banking. One is the banking itself, and that is that as a result of our money laundering laws, many of which have to do with the war on drugs and also fear of terrorism, uh, we now require specific types of ID in order to open a bank account. And it's surprising that you know people focus a lot on voting uh, ID requirements. But it affects the same way in terms of banking. About 20% of poor people don't have the proper identification required in order to open a bank account. This forces them to either go to alternative banking like payday lending or pawn shops or, or things of that nature or to carry around large amounts of cash. And, of course, if you live in a you know, poor, high-crime neighborhood, carrying around a, a wad of cash in your pocket is probably not the best idea. You, you tend to get robbed or else picked up by the police thinking you're a drug uh, courier. Uh, so, uh, you know, that certainly is a disadvantage to the poor. In addition to that, our welfare rules once again said to have this perverse disincentive 
uh, to save. We're fine for consumption. If you get a welfare check and you spend every penny of it, uh, that's fine. We're not going to do anything about that. But if you get a welfare check and you take some of that money and you put it away in a savings account to help send your kid to school someday, we're going to take away your welfare check. Uh, we have asset laws tests, uh, for welfare that take things into account like your car. Well, how are you supposed to ever go get a job if we take away your car or we say you can't get welfare because you have a car? Those things are, are kind of uh, self-defeating. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's, it's almost like there's a little bit of outrage in every chapter because I'm like, really? Like this is still an overlooked thing. Like it, like I said, too bad to be true. Like I did not know this. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of sort of, you know, misunderstandings or just ignorance about, about poverty. Uh, so as you kind of frame the whole book, like we want everybody to flourish, you know, we want all, all people to flourish. We want the market to work for everybody. And we want to include the poor in that economic growth because economic growth is the biggest ticket out of poverty. Uh, how do you, how do you make that more inclusive? I mean, we our our culture about wealth today is all about inequality. I mean, the left has sort of commandeered that argument and they talk a lot about inequality. Is that part of the answer is to make it less unequal? Not really. There, there actually is very little evidence to suggest that if the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. In fact, you can look at what's called the Gini coefficient, uh, which is the statistical measure by which we test inequality. And uh, as the Gini coefficient gets larger, which means there's more inequality in America, poverty has actually gone down. So the, it, it's difficult to say that, uh, that there's a direct relationship with that. Now, that said, we do find increasingly it make it hard for low-income people or poor people to be able to move into the economic mainstream, to get to that first step up on the economic ladder. So in the book, I look at things like occupational licensing laws, the fact that about 25 to 30 percent of all jobs in America require you to get a license from the government in order to perform that job. And getting that license is often time-consuming and expensive and or contains other barriers uh, to getting a, to getting that license. Take a, take one example I mentioned in the book in Louisiana, if you want to be a cosmetologist, that is, you want to do makeup uh, type of stuff and hairdressing, uh, you have to get a license from the state. It takes uh, a, an extended period of time, months to a year to, uh, to take all the courses necessary to get that, uh, license. Then you have to take a test. That test is only given in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, twice a year. It's a two-day test, which means you have to stay overnight uh, to do that. So if you're a poor single mother trying to, to make ends meet and you want to uh, get one of these licenses, you have to come up with the money to get the textbooks. You have to take the courses. You then have to tra travel to Monroe. You have to pay for a hotel overnight. You have to pay for this test, and then you have to pay for the license. All, all of which is not very easy for you. And we wonder why poor people aren't part of the greater economy. Hmm. Wow. That's just, that's just so bad <laughs> that that, that kind of thing happens. I mean, this is one of the major things that, that, you know, these are the very everyday practical ways in which the government is like literally limiting people from, from 
they don't even have bootstraps here. Like they're ta- they're taken away if that concept has any merit at all. It's like, but they don't even have any because the government's taken them away. That's exactly the point. And I and I talk in the book about things like occupational zoning, which says you can't start a little business in your in your house. You know, if you want to cook up some uh, some food and send, sell it to your neighbors, some pies maybe or something that's easy for. I'm trying to think of things for things with people who have very few skills could do and earn a few bucks. We're going to tell you you can't do that. Or even minimum wage laws would say that people who have very minimum skills can't get that first job uh, that's going to enable them to learn how, uh, you know, how to move up the economic ladder. Uh, we're going to block all of those things because of government regulations. Uh, we're fine with, with basically locking them out because the people on the scale above them uh, don't want the competition. So – you know, your book, The Inclusive Economy, is the culmination of a number of years of research and experience. And uh, you said you've talked to poor people. And what myths would you like to smash down that the left or the right believe about what what poverty is in the United States? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the biggest myth that both the left and the right have is that the poor basically cannot succeed that whether they they say it's because the poor don't want to try hard enough or because they say the poor are blocked in our system because of our racist, sexist society, they think that the poor are permanently stuck in their condition. And I don't believe this. I actually believe that the poor can become full participants in our society, can rise up as far as their talents will take them if we allow them to. And if we can simply let people become part of the economy and take advantage of all the opportunities that this country has to offer, then they can rise and there's no limit on how far someone can go. Are you optimistic about that prospect in the next coming decades? You know, I, I am an inherently an optimist. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of changes in, uh, in my lifetime. We have a long way to go, but, uh, but I'm an inherently an optimist. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. Do you think the, uh, the mobile economy and the app and the sharing economy is going to help that? I mean, it's making it easier for banking. You mentioned that in the book. Do you think that's going to be a major contributor? Well, it's helped in many ways. Just take, take example, Uber. Uh, there has enabled someone, all they have to have is a car and a knowledge of their community, and they can earn a living. It's also enabled where there are neighborhoods where taxis don't want to take you and where you can never find a cab uh, because it's a low-income, uh, mm-hmm. marginal district. Uh, Uber services those areas. Basically, new jobs, new opportunities are springing up all the time. Those are always a benefit. Well, Mike, I highly recommend your book. Thank you for joining us and talking about the topic of poverty. It's near and dear to our hearts in terms of, you know, what it means for us to be libertarians. We we do care for the poor at the Libertarian Christian Institute. And, you know, uh, I really appreciate your contribution to this issue. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.